Welcome to Art Fictions. This is Gillian Knipe. As well as being an artist, I'm the creator and producer of this podcast. Though today's the day for a different voice. Here's a warm welcome to our host, the curator, writer, mentor and educator Vanessa Murrell, along with her guest artist, Sophie Rugrock. Together they'll be talking about escape, clouds, tears, Buddhism role-playing, manifesting reality, body leaking, collapsing flesh, wearing wigs, cold showers, hypersensitive characters, contemporary spiritualism, movie set extras, expressing the psyche, masks as mediators, disconnected lonely people, swimming on the carpet, beautifully weird realizations about humanity, the loss of fantasy, appropriating from art history, being allergic to the world, true signs of falsehood, and Sophie using her fingers to make images of fingers before dipping her toe into oil paint. Let's hear it all directly from Vanessa and Sophie. Hello and welcome to Art Fictions, which explores the art of stories and the stories of art. We have a very special guest with us, uh, artist Sophie Rugrock. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so this is actually our second conversation. Following our wonderful chat last summer at Tabula Rasa Gallery in London, it was titled Decoding Layers, and we were decoding the layers of your artwork along with uh, Katerina Kasserman. And now here we are, uh, decoding the layers of a fantastic book. It's by Miranda July, and it's called No One Belongs Here More Than You. And actually, I researched that it was her first published book. So I wanted to know, Sophie, what about the book resonated with you so much? I think when I first started making work, that book was really, really important to me. Whenever I was feeling lost in the studio or, yeah, didn't know which direction to go in, I'd literally find the book, open it up, read a story and seem to somehow know what I wanted to say. The book is basically 16 short stories all together. They're all incredibly weird, really beautiful. And that's the thing, she kind of straddles this space between like incredibly beautiful realizations about humanity with this kind of strange, very New York <laughs> sense of humor. I don't think she's from New York, but that's how it feels to me. And so she kind of manages to simultaneously kind of pan across so many different emotions. She's got like beauty, sadness, um, weirdness, humor, she often goes really into like taboo subjects so there's this slightly unsettling feeling to so many of the stories as well and that's kind of always what I wanted to do in my work I kind of wanted to be able to simultaneously talk to so many different emotions and aspects of what it was to be human I can just picture you in your studio uh, lost and wandering around just trying to find this book Miranda on the safe um, but I'm, I think it was like one of the most difficult parts of digging into this book was actually introducing the author Miranda mm. July it's like so so difficult to define her uh, mm-hmm. I mean she's an artist she's mm-hmm. a filmmaker uh, she's done apps uh, she's done a set, a set of emails the broad range of things that she's worked with is really incredible. And uh, with the book, when we were exploring the different stories, mm. uh, you, you also mentioned it felt like it, it was just one psyche going through all of these different stories as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, as you said, she's so talented, annoyingly talented. Um, she's an incredible writer. And that, as you said, was her first published book, this collection of short stories. And then she wrote a novel after, which is also really amazing. Yeah, she's an artist and she would express her psyche through whichever medium she was using at that time and always did it so incredibly well. But yeah, as you mentioned, 
it's definitely always her. Like every single short story is coming from the same internal world, I feel. Like the interiority of the characters always feels like, well, it's kind of quite clearly her internal world in many ways. Yeah, and the characters feel very hypersensitive to the world. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you don't know if they are, you know, loving the world or they're allergic to it. And they feel like unlucky in some ways, but then the audience gets like really sympathetic towards their issues as well. It's this very weird space. And the tone as well, it seems very confessional, as you said, like in a way, like autobiographical to some extent. And I'm wondering if if there's any specific story in this collection that has had an impact on you so i love them all um well actually not that's not true there's a few that i don't think hold up as much but the one that really resonates with me is um, mon placer and this is a story about a couple completely disconnected which is the case with the majority of her characters they're really alienated disconnected people lonely kind of trying to connect and not really ever getting there. And this couple in particular, they describe themselves as being like a meaningful couple. They want meaningful things in life. They don't believe in meaningless things like Easter cards or whatever. There's a line which is like... It says, in general, we try to stay away from things that are meaningless. And she says this in capitals, Mm. which I found very striking. And favour the things that are meaningful. Our top three favourite meaningful things are Buddhism, eating right, and the internal landscape. Yeah, so I feel like that encapsulates the couple really well. They're on this sort of spiritual new age path where like everything in their life is geared towards having spiritual meaning. And July does this incredible thing throughout this story where she simultaneously acknowledges that the couple lives like this and seems to almost be on side with them living like this. But also, she pokes fun at it so much, ridicules it. And the woman, the female protagonist, wakes up one day, realises that this is the first day of the rest of her life. So she wants to make this huge internal shift. Um, And she marks that by um, getting a haircut, getting new shoes, all these kind of external things that don't really ever kind of change the internal. And as she kind of like grapples with the fact that her and her husband or partner um, are increasingly disconnected, she decides that in order to save themselves, what they need to do is become extras on a movie set. So she kind of gets this number and she's calling it up and eventually they go into this movie set role playing as extras. And this whole incredible scene plays out where like they're sat there conversing in silence and they're like laughing and joking and they're understanding each other's silent communication. And for those moments when they're acting, they're like full of joy and, um, you know, really connecting and they kind of, they get each other and then the cameras will cut and they'll go back to not even being able to make eye contact. And then the whole thing ends and they go back home and they realise that they just, they shouldn't be together. They actually, when it comes to reality, they have absolutely nothing to say. Yeah, this story resonated with me for so many reasons. I mean, first of all, I love the way that she kind of really hits a nose on the head when it comes to talking about contemporary spiritualism and the way that people use it in this quite like flippant way. The a male character in the story is like, he's online all night writing to his Buddhist Sangha and he is annoyed because his Tai Chi instructor is like cracking jokes and not giving the kind of original names for things, but giving the like English names for things. And I think that's something that I, it really resonates with me on a personal level because I'm also in that weird space where I simultaneously really buy into those things. I'll do my cold showers in the morning. Uh, I'll like read horoscopes when I'm feeling lost. But I also like fundamentally can see how deeply hilarious 
an embarrassing yeah. novel. Yeah. And I remember that <laughs> when I visited your studio and we were talking about this book, you said the book is just like slaps of joke, 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 mm. and then sad. Mm-hmm. And it's like this balance of humor and sadness in her work that it's so effective. In other stories like The Shared Patio, yeah. there's this uh, constant going back and forth between what's funny and what's sad. And I'm wondering, mm. why is this balance so powerful to you? I think it's such a fundamental part of life generally. It's often riddled with really sad stuff. You have to cope with things that are difficult or sad. And a way to cope with that is humour. Uh, I think she does that really well, you know, like plays into that that trope as well of the sad clown. I think a lot of her insecurities and like worries and, and a lot of her pain does come through in the writing. And by making those jokes, she kind of is almost like a coping mechanism. Sorry, yeah. there is a part even in this other story mm. uh, called The Person, yeah. right? Which is like everyone uh, in her life, in, in the character's mm. life, um, is there to give her love. And, you know, she's like, uh, this is like the best day, the happiest day of my life. Uh, my school teachers, my all my friends, all of my family's here. Everything I've experienced is a lie. Mm. And nothing was true. Uh, like we only like lived these moments as a lesson in a way. Like to sh- uh, that you've you've passed the lesson and now you're you've in passed the test. And, and now you're in reality. Yeah. Yeah. And reality is that we're all giving you love. And still within this love setting, she's like. Uh, this is so sad I feel so empty I don't feel human anymore yeah totally and I think her characters have so much of that there's actually this quote that I wanted to read from the shared patio and I think in relation to what I was saying about humor the only way she manages to write this really like earnestly moving point is via it being a submission to a magazine that the main character works for so again it's like this idea of there needs to be like a mediatory force that allows for her to kind of speak honestly and openly so but she, there is a sad element because this yeah. submission isn't accepted that is true and yes it's never published as <laughs> yeah well. i think that's such a good like thing to pick up on and again that kind of underpins everything in the story it's like she wants to say this thing which i'm about to say <laughs> but like even in in the context of the story no one can listen to it because mm you know it's never published and no one hears what that character is trying to say and she also mentions how like um the only true voice you Mm. can have is when you're authorless when your Mm. name isn't um yeah out there which i found very interesting as a you know herself as a writer writing this book yeah that's totally true should i yeah read it okay do you have doubts about life are you unsure if it is worth the trouble look at the sky that is for you Look at each person's face as you pass on the street. Those faces are for you. And the street itself. And the ground under the street. And the ball of fire underneath the ground. All these things are for you. They are as much for you as they are for other people. Remember this when you wake up in the morning and think you have nothing. Stand up and face the east. Now praise the sky and praise the light within each person under the sky. It's okay to be unsure, but praise, praise, praise. So yeah, it's like a super like beautiful, moving kind of, but it's also a submission to a magazine that never gets published. Yeah, and the context of this quote is as well just a sentence she shared with her neighbour. Yeah, this whole story, is, it's such a beautiful story. It's like this woman who's got this fantasy relationship with her next door neighbour. She exchanges a few words with him and then kind of sinks into this whole fantasy of being with the, the guy. 
the guy obviously doesn't care about her. He just kind of wants to talk to her about his typography. Um, <laughs> but there's this element that she's like looking for connections just by sitting next to a character yeah. or uh, yeah. being in the shared common ground with a character. Uh, but that doesn't actually connect them. No, she never. Re- her characters never really seem to actually escape from their interior world. They're always kind of stuck in this interiority kind of desperately trying to like penetrate through the surface of something and and never quite getting there. And moving on with other topics, Mm. I know that desire was a big topic we spoke about, particularly in the story titled The Swim Team, Mm. uh, which I believe is one of your favorite and my favorite stories as well. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about this story in particular and why it had such an impact on you. Yeah, of course. So in terms of desire, I think desire comes up so much in all of the stories you know there's always this gap between what the character like wants and what the character has and I think that's just a kind of like fundamental part of life generally I think it like fuels everything in the swim team in particular to kind of give a very quick summary it's a story that's sandwiched between two bookends which are the protagonist talking to an ex-boyfriend the beginning starts by saying this is a story I never told you when we were together and then she essentially explains that the reason is because she didn't want to let that person down. She knew that like the imagined story that her ex had was so much more interesting than what had actually happened. And then she goes into the story of what had actually happened, which was at some point in her life she'd gone to a small town where nothing happened for the, a and whole year. And that's the quote she says. Yeah. The most interesting thing that happened was that nothing happened. happened. <laughs> yeah, and she spends a year there. And she starts to realise that these local people who are kind of quite a bit older than her, they've never been swimming. And they're really impressed that she used to be like on a swim team. So she starts to offer them swimming lessons. But the problem is there's no swimming pool. So what she does is she gives them swimming lessons on the floor of the apartment. And there are like buckets of water placed in front of each of the swimmers and she puts salt in them as well because she's like well if they're gonna sniff water they may as well sniff salt water because it's supposed to be good for you (laughs) Um, because these are very elderly people as well yeah and then like there are these incredible scenes described where the imagery of these elderly people thrashing on the floor of an apartment and trying to swim without actually any water around them and that is essentially what the story is she kind of she yeah I, I think you picked up on the fact that she dissects her life into the days when she would wake up when there is a swim practice and the days when she'd wake up and there's no swim practice. But she said her whole life was just thinking about the swimming. Like that gave her meaning in her life. And I feel like uh, so much in what drives our lives individually as well. Mm. When you're very excited about something, you constantly think about it. Um, Totally. You're expecting for it to happen continually. Yeah, completely. And that's kind of how it links into this idea of desire as well. It's like, I think, like on a very, like, if you're reading it very, like, I don't know, on a very literal level, the desire for these people to become swimmers is obviously prevalent. But then it's also that kind of desire for all the characters to kind of belong to this group where they're kind of finding community amongst each other. And then, like, the desire that the main character has for her ex-boyfriend to believe that her life was so much more interesting than it actually was. The desire for her ex-boyfriend as well, on a more literal level. Um, So at the end of the story, after the swimming is over, she kind of, I guess, comes back to the present day where she's in the supermarket and she's run into her ex-boyfriend who's with his new partner. 
yeah, so it's like clearly the story of like longing and loss in a way. And then she says she's the must be the saddest uh, swim coach <laughs> ever. <laughs> ever but I think what is very brilliant about this story in particular is how visual it is. Mm, Even yes. if you're reading words, you can mm-hmm. just imagine these very elderly people flopping their hands mm. in the kitchen floor with these buckets and everything is so hilarious Mm. and she even like really gets into the role of being a coach Mm -hmm. and she says I would put some intervals and give them directions and but she was like in many ways lying because she said this is the technique that the Olympic swimmers would do Mm -hmm. and it was just like this fun role play as well which is another of the main themes of this book how in order to be liberated you take on a role and it was the role of being this coach in this case as well. Totally. I think like role play is, for me, one of the most interesting things that comes up over and over again. So obviously in Mon Placer, the first story we spoke about when those characters are literally playing the roles of the extras in the film. And that allows them to kind of be free and find different versions of themselves that are happy and in love. Um, here, this kind of role playing as this coach, role playing as someone who can like teach and like provide something to other people. There's so many other incidents of role-playing. In Birthmark, for instance, which is another story where the protagonist undergoes a procedure to remove her birthmark, Mm -hmm. it's some sort of form of role-play to imagine her Mm -hmm. without the birthmark and with the birthmark. And at the end of the story, she assumes a new identity and escapes her past, but it really she was sort of happier before modifying her face. Yeah, totally. What I find so interesting about that story, Birthmark, is so she gets, as you said, that birthmark removed. And when she had it, the way that the character is described is, besides her birthmark, she's so gorgeous. And then that kind of gap where it's like the imagined potential of what she could be is so interesting because it's kind of this idea of perfection. Like once she gets the birthmark removed, she'll be perfect. And then once it actually happens, like there's no room for that imagined space for perfection like suddenly the fantasy can't exist anymore because the reality is there and like everything in life the reality is never as good as a fantasy and so it's ultimately kind of a disappointment and so much about the book is about the merging of reality and fantasy yes even like so many of these stories come from dreams or you Mm. don't know how you know where, where it's coming from there's so much interweaving of what's real and what's a a fantasy Totally. I think she she plays with reality and fantasy so well. It's like the ultimate fantasy that someone someday turns around and says to you, guess what, the whole of your life has just been a rehearsal and the real thing starts now and it's going to be really good. It's total wish fulfillment in a way. It's kind of, I think, what's what I want. I'd love for that to happen. Um, But then she's in bed and she says, I I really messed up. My chance of, like, being loved. Yeah, totally. So I'm, you know, we've kind of discussed the book um, mm. and uh, several of the highlighted stories. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's a good time now to move on to talking a bit about your practice. So just to briefly introduce yourself, you're a London-based artist who primarily works in drawing and painting. Mm-hmm. Your work explores ideas around the psyche, interiority versus exteriority, uh, the spiritual versus the everyday, which I feel have been topics we've definitely spoken about archetypal imagery and the body you derive your compositions from a wide range of sources including film stills found photographs stock images and appropriations from art history which are fused with your own autobiographical encounters and staged photographs (laughs) 
And uh, you create a construction of installation of networks of images, which I find to be really interesting, kind of linked to this uh, book in many ways as well. It's not just one piece in its singularity, it's about the connection of multiple pieces. Mm-hmm. And you weave in together uh, non-linear narratives within this. So it just feels so, so connected with everything that we have spoken about. And yeah, I'm just wondering about moving on to this idea of fantasy and reality, which we've just touched upon. How do you explore it in your actual work, the extraordinary in the everyday, particularly within your recent solo show at The Sunday Painter? Yeah, first of all, I think you're so right. Like, I see so many connections to Miranda July's work. And I have to say, I think that's because she was quite a big influence on me. But yeah, I think the kind of extraordinary everyday thing is something I've always really, you know, intentionally had in my work and wanted to kind of come through. And in particular, with my recent show at the Sunday Painter, well, it, it was last year, it was 2022. It was called Today I Feel Relevant and Alive. That show in particular really played with that concept. One of the fundamental themes of that show was taking this idea of really heightened states of ecstasy or really heightened emotional states and looking at them and putting them in parallel against art historical ways of expressing spiritual ecstasy. So in particular, I was looking a lot at Benini and in particular Benini's Ecstasy of St. Teresa. So there's a little cupid on top of her penetrating her with an arrow and she literally looks in the throes of pleasure. Like she fully looks like she's having an orgasm, to be honest. Um, (laughs) I think that was such a common trope at the time, this conflation between spiritual revelry or spiritual highs and kind of more worldly pleasure. And I guess a way that people found to represent those kind of spiritual modes of pleasure was via things in this actual world. So what I did for a lot of that show is I kind of took that open-mouthed figure as like a basis for a lot of the work. But in the world that I created for the show, it was kind of people, you know, laughing with their mouths open in this kind of quite manic state of laughter or eating or you know, having sex or not not in an explicit way, but kind of suggested that. Yeah, or dancing in a party. And by drawing parallels between those art historical ways of expressing kind of spiritual ecstasy and contemporary forms of ecstasy, I was basically trying to kind of put those two ways of enjoying on a parallel yeah, yeah. And, it, and within the spiritual part of your practice, uh, your titles are also derived from horoscopes uh, and you've also represented uh, hands holding tarot cards. And uh, similarly to how Miranda July plays with the, the spiritual in the sense that it, she's kind of poking a joke, but then she's also very involved because she also does these silent meditations in her personal life and it's something she's spoken about. You're very much as well like part of it, but also outside of it. And particularly your choice of titles. Uh, can you tell us a bit about some of these in relation to spirituality? Totally. Well, yeah, I think you're very right to say that like there is a part of me that's kind of, you know, I definitely use it as a tool, as a resource. So if I'm feeling lost, I'll do a tarot reading for myself. <laughs> I'll meditate, you know, but at the same time, I do see the humour in it and you know I'll look up my horoscope in one kind of thought I'll be like yes this is telling me everything I need to know and then I'll simultaneously think okay I don't actually believe in this at all (laughs) but so I think a lot of the time what I do when I'm titling things yeah some of the time is I'll look up a horoscope reading and I'll literally lift lines 
from those horoscope readings and use them as titles. So I think even today I feel relevant and alive came from a horoscope that I read. Working on my internal landscape, that came from like a manifestation quote that I read or something like that. There's a work that I have, which is, it's called Psyche and Eros at the Beach and then brackets, you should feel a building sense of purpose and pleasure. And that part in brackets is also from a horoscope reading. And I quite like to do that because I feel like a lot of my, my work can have this quite like sad undertone in a way. It's, it's not particularly light. And I think, at least for me, it's like a little bit of a breath of fresh air to kind of inject this slight humour into the work by... Like, it might just be a joke that I have with myself, to be honest, because I don't know how much other people will realise it. But when I know that I've named a piece after a horoscope prediction, I guess it does what July does in a way where it allows a work to simultaneously be beautiful, sad, and funny. Mm. And there's so much of in her book that she looks for signs, particularly in one that's called Majesty, where mm. this character falls in love with Prince William. Yeah. <laughs> and then she's looking for signs that tell her, like, this is okay, you can fantasize about this. Like, she hears a song playing in the mm. car, and she's like, oh, this song is about love. It reinforces my message that I should keep on with this fantasy. Totally. And then uh, when she Googles something, it says, uh, you should follow your intuition or something. And then she's like, okay, this is another sign I should do this. So I feel like so much of your title uh, choices is like following this strategy. There's one piece in particular Thank that's you. called Positive Mental Attitude, oh, yeah. which I love because <laughs> um, it's these group of four girls laughing yeah. and seeing it externally, there's something very strange in the laugh. They could mm. feel like they're shouting in some way. Totally. So that work, as you mentioned, Positive Mental Attitude, that title came a bit from this self-help language that I like to play with as well sometimes. And the original composition was inspired by the Singing Angels in the Ghent Altarpiece, which is by Van Eyck. It's an absolutely incredible masterpiece. I saw it recently, actually, when I was in Ghent. I, I think it was being restored for a long period of time. And now you can go see it, although it's like annoyingly behind so much glass, so you can never get that close. But yeah, so the initial composition idea was taken from these Singing Angels. And then I staged a photograph of some of my closest friends doing this quite manic laughter. So I think what you're seeing is them actually really not laughing because it's just me basically trying to force my friends to laugh for this reference image I'm trying to get. But yeah, again, so I think with that, that image, it's like the dual nature of having the kind of initial thinking behind the composition as being, again, altarpiece and then it being like this stage image of my friends. Forced laughing. Forced laughing. It kind of like draws these kind of strange connections between these two really disparate things or seemingly disparate mm. things. And, and I think by doing that, like by putting those things on parallel and together, I kind of hope to place them on an even playing field. And It's like you're you know, lightening the weights. And I know yeah. you did that with another piece at Marlboro mm. that was in relation to Francis Bacon as well. Yes. A very heavy piece, which you also use the strategy of lightening it in some way. Yeah, so those works, it was three pieces. And I've t I titled them after the different types of fun. I don't know if you've ever heard of this concept of fun. So there's type one fun, which is something which is fun now. Yeah, fun now, and also fun later. <laughs> like this. Like this. <laughs> or, you know, like eating a cake or something, I suppose. Uh, and then there's type two fun, which is not fun now, fun later. So that's something like, I guess, a hike, or, you know, something that's kind of like tough in the moment, but 
you look back and you're proud. And then type three fun, which is not fun now, not fun later. Which, I mean, I was trying to Google what that could possibly be, and I think someone's suggestion was like, oh, accidentally hooking up with your ex. You think it might be good before you do it, but... It's a wrong decision. It's a wrong decision. You're not really enjoying it at the time. When you look back on it, you kind of regret it. So there were three images that I'd made looking at Bacon's work, and it was very oriented around the mouth and teeth, which is very Bacon, and like also this kind of sense of anguish. So I think by having those titles, I like to have titles that scramble the meaning of my work. I think like Magritte is the ultimate reference for this. Sometimes I feel like truly when I'm looking at his work, it's just simply random. But this comical aspect mm. within the, your choice of titles, mm. I feel like there is also another comical aspect. Sometimes in the imagery, like it doesn't mm. always come in the titles and sometimes it's from your actual references, images. Because the works that we've spoken about, they the reference images are from art history, right? With this Bacon piece mm. or the Van Eyck piece. Mm. But then you also sometimes use reference images from stock images, which are these very generic images. And there's some sort of comedy within positioning that within the art sphere in a way. Yeah, totally. I don't think many people who look at my work on first glance would see much of that kind of humour in it, to be honest. But again, it's kind of like a joke I'm having with myself, where often my ideas will come before I have the reference image. Sometimes they even come when I'm napping and I have a dream and I'll suddenly get this idea for a composition. And in order to actually get that down, I'll look at stock images as reference. And I kind of get this weird pleasure out of that because to me it's funny to like take something so soulless and elevate it to this higher plane. And yeah. you elevate it as well through your use of colour. Yeah, totally. I looked a lot at icon paintings. I've looked a lot at religious art. My work has the palette of these icons and this underpinning of religiosity. And then when there's a stock image as a reference, I again, I like that kind of lack of hierarchy when it comes to choosing where the image comes from. It's kind of ultimately like saying, okay, all these images are the same. It is kind of a human construct where we put the, the importance, like where we decide this has more value. And then there are other devices that you use, similarly to Miranda in the sense that she explores in the book, uh, the interior self and the exterior mm. self. And you particularly like explore this theme within uh, masks, uh, mm. tears, yeah. and uh, can you tell us more about the specific devices you use to, to explore this theme? Yeah, I think that split between the interior world and the exterior world is like something so fundamental in my work. It's quite hard to communicate that on a visual level, so I use symbols a lot to kind of talk to that. The go-tos for me are masks, clouds and tears. So in the case of masks, I think on a very literal level, it's like this device that we use that will buffer the individual against the world. And by putting on a mask, you can become anything. Sometimes it allows you to express your interiority more. In the case of Miranda July's characters, for example... Role-playing, oh, right? Role-playing, exactly. And there's one of the stories where the, the character puts on a wig and she's oh, yeah. able to like love her girlfriend or like feels really... I don't know, like confident in front of her ex-girlfriend again because she's got this wig on. So the mask is like this mediator between the interior and the exterior world and can allow for different types of expression to come through. And then there are clouds, which I think historically have always been a symbol of this shifting internal landscape, yet obviously they exist there in the outer world. They kind of hint to these other realms, you know, in art history they've been used as a stand-in for where heaven is. And then tears, they're incredible. 
so your emotional world, like your interior world, is able to provoke so much change or able to feel so much that then that interiority expresses itself through something material. Like your body actually starts leaking, it starts producing water. So the interior world is literally spilling out over into the, the exterior world. And so they're the perfect symbol. And you're the first person that ever told me that you like the shape of a tear. Um, and I remember Googling it and it was like the most aerodynamic shape that exists. <laughs> That's so cool. I didn't. Yeah, you told me that before. Yeah. And, you know, talking about these clouds, in the book it's also a device that Miranda uses, which mm. I feel expressed so much of the interior landscape of the characters. Completely. And this is like a very, very nice Wait, transition. I can't, I can't remember. Because I know that you are currently reading a book in oh, relation yeah. to clouds, <laughs> which I think is hilarious. Yeah, it's it's actually a book. I have to shout out my friend, Divya Charlo, who... Um, is also one of like my most frequent models, but she gave me this book, Cloud Spotting, because she she empathised with my obsession with clouds. And I'm not gonna lie, when I first saw the book, I, I really was like, I can't believe you expect me to read this whole book about clouds. Like this was the type of thing that I would avoid in geography, like, you know? <laughs> and, um, but it's incredible. The author, I, I don't know how he does it, but he manages to make clouds incredibly interesting. His kind of anecdotal, references to clouds and clouds throughout history amazing um what are what are the best clouds in art history oh yeah okay so i'll tell you the worst one well he doesn't think this is the worst but he kind of slates mantenia a lot because apparently mantenia wasn't actually replicating real clouds he's kind of just making up his own clouds Mm -hmm. but he does mention that mantenia also does this thing where um he will basically you know when you look for shapes in the clouds like images and stuff so Mantegna will put that in his painting. So there'll be like a floating horse cloud in the background of some of his work, which is quite funny. For me, the biggest finds through that book have been, there's a photographer called Alfred Stieglitz, who I think photographed all the like modernists, but he's been credited with being the first photographer to create sort of abstract photographs. He's got this amazing series of just photographing clouds. And they really look like abstract photographs. Like before that time, I don't think the camera was being used to photograph essentially like wafts of air or nothing. <laughs> is this is this one of your main inspirations for an upcoming show that you have in Mallorca in Spain? Oh, yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess I should kind of shout out the details. So I'm doing an upcoming group show at Tube Gallery in Mallorca. It's the inaugural show. And it's called Stilled Images, and it's about this idea of artists moving between the moving and still images, and how moving image and still image influence each other. I haven't made the work yet, but it's in the (laughs) making. Um, But the plan is to do a triptych of clouds, and each image of clouds will be taken from uh, a different film, which is to do with escape. So I think I've settled on The Truman Show, Interstellar, and Thelma and Louise. And which again, are films which have certain lightness to them Yeah, as well. definitely. They're entertainment in a way, those films. And I kind of wanted to have that simultaneous like high and low. Like The, the works themselves would be you know, beautiful images of clouds. And to have the background reference being something which is, yeah, something a little bit more lowbrow in a way. <laughs> or not lowbrow, but, you know, it kind of, again, scrambles the, the viewer's expectations. And then moving on with this idea of the triptych, in mm. which you will explore in this show in Spain. Mm. I know that you're also doing another show that relates to the idea of the triptych here in London. 
Yeah, so I'm doing... Well, sh- another triptych. Three, three, three parts. parts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this show will open at Huxley Parlour on the 27th of April, and it's called In Three Acts. And the concept for the show is, well, it looks at the three-act structure, which is used in, I guess, storytelling generally, and kind of asks for artists to interpret that visually. In my case, I'm kind of doing a triptych, which is split out over three images, Something that I find really, really fascinating about how you combine images, and that's something we picked up before, is some of the images that you position alongside each other are like very close up and then others are very far away. Mm, You you delve between the micro and the macro. And what's the connection between this image and the other image? Or is it random or is it linear? Is it non-linear? Like we will see these three images and one of them I think is some feet like coming out of the water <laughs> yeah <laughs> then there's these other figures and tell us more about your installation of images I guess there are two things to say there first of all when it comes to this kind of idea of some of the images being super close up and like macro a lot of that thinking initially came from this book by Susan Stewart that I read who's like an American poet and academic And the book's called On Longing. And she essentially takes the idea of the miniature and the giant and uses them as metaphors to kind of explore things like interiority and exteriority. So for her, like, the miniature is interiority and the giant is exteriority. It's it's such an incredible book. I mean, it's quite dense and, like, far-reaching. Like, it goes into so many different areas. But for me, the things that really resonated was this idea of, yeah, the miniature can mean so much about the interior world. And so often I'll like choose to zoom in super close on something or use that kind of macro lens in a way almost to kind of give that tiny thing significance. So that is sometimes the thinking behind the work, wanting to have this balance of panned out shot and a panned in shot. And Um, also with your scale, because you mm, work very, very small to bigger. mm, And in some ways, when the works are so small, you want to hold them, right? You want to care for them. Yeah, like that's such a big idea in her book. So yeah, as you said, I sometimes make works that are tiny, like 20 by 15 centimetres. And for me, it's kind of a literal interpretation of her idea of the miniature and thinking about what that kind of miniature-ness of the work will provoke in a viewer. I don't know, for me, it kind of like almost provoked this sort of maternal instinct of wanting to like look after, protect, like hold this miniature thing. And what about your latest piece in the studio? I know there was a work that I saw, which was quite large in school. Quite large for me, yeah. yeah. I'm trying to go bigger. It's not something that I've done for a long time. Like Mar- in Miranda July's work, there's so much in my characters where there, there seems to be a desire to connect. On a visual level, I'll use devices like hands touching flesh, or like flesh looking like it's kind of collapsing into each other. I kind of also want it to feel like those bodies are becoming one, kind of confusing in a way. So I think that piece that you saw in my studio, it's about that. It's like this pile of people and I wanted it to feel like a chaotic pile of people where you can't discern one limb from the other. Weirdly, I think part of the thinking also came from Hans Memling's like hellscapes. I don't know if you've seen them. They're like, yeah, amazing medieval paintings. Not that that's particularly the kind of sentiment behind the work, it being like a hellscape, but... Because oh, no. they do touch each other, right, yeah. in, in this work, but they they don't really look at each other. Yeah, I think there is that element of disconnection. Definitely like that disconnection that the characters have in July's work. And I characters. know you have a book about hand gestures as well. Mm, yes, I got very into ideas around body language. 
So I was looking a lot at like gestures. I mean, again, it comes a lot from art history. Like throughout art history, there's been paintings are so rich with like so many different gestures. I, I mean, it's overwhelming to try and figure out what they all mean. Uh, but I think that device of using the hand or to communicate when the medium is visual is really interesting. And so I've got this one piece, which is the image of a girl with like two fingers in front of her eyes. And the initial trigger for the idea was in this book I had about body language. And supposedly that gesture of men, cross my heart and hope to die, or like, I swear it's true, something along those lines in Dutch. Although I did ask my dad, who is Dutch, and he he never heard of it. So I don't really know if that gesture <laughs> does exist. But then, so I was thinking of using the gesture in that way. And then I was in Naples last summer, and I was in the San Severo Chapel, and I came across a sculpture which was the same thing. It was like two fingers in front of the eyes. I don't fully know what it means. I think it might be the idea of like Christ healing the blind or something. Mm. Again, it's that same idea of like this gesture. It comes up throughout history. It comes up like time over. I think this might also be a good time to briefly mention Jung because he has such a big impact on my work. And his idea of like archetypal images is something that is so important to me. When I'm putting these kind of things in parallel with each other, when I'm like looking at a book about body language and the San Severo Chapel, and that, then I see that gesture comes up in both those places, or when I'm like making that image positive mental attitude, and like it's simultaneously Van Eyck's altarpiece and my friends now being forced to laugh, having those same images seemingly play out at like different points of time, it speaks to this idea of like there being these repeated images that recur throughout humanity and it it speaks to this idea as well of existence in humanity being this like constant cycle of the same thing and how ultimately we're kind of all having the same experience that we've always had I mean it's like obviously hyper real at this point with the kind of levels of tech that we've got and stuff but I guess in a similar way how Miranda uses like the tactility of the body mm. and like in you know for instance in these figures swimming and flopping their arms mm-hmm. uh, to describe something that she can't say with words so you have to visually imagine it yeah. and you're kind of like visually speaking in a in an artwork and then having these hidden languages yeah. which are like embedded within these gestures to have this coded message yeah completely So something to mention about your work is that you work with pastels, which yes, is like a very, very key uh, part. And mm. I'm wondering if you're planning on working with any other mediums uh, besides pastels. Because when I entered your studio, mm. I came out red. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> This is my main, main outfit reference for today. Yeah, I try to tell people not to wear white when they come to the studio because it's basically like... I don't know how I manage it, but the entire space is just covered in like orange and brown pastel dust. I mean, even the book, I had to whitewash it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I tried to get it as clean as possible. But yeah, um, I'm playing around a bit with oil paint as well at the moment. I mean, I feel like they're they're very similar mediums in a way. There's like a, a total immediacy to pastels, which is incredible. And also the pigment load in pastel is like nothing else. I think because there's not very much binder, like, and it's just mostly pigment. The color can sometimes be like shocking. So they're, they're super fun. And it feels like it's this very like haptic kind of bodily way of working when you're working with your fingers the whole time and 
you know you don't need to use like brushes or whatever um i love that you work with fingers yeah. as well to depict fingers and hands yeah it's kind of like adult finger painting <laughs> My work is inherently ha has this very like fragile quality, and which I think does lend itself to the work in a way. But I'm kind of itching to try new things, so I am dipping my toes in oil paints and trying to see where that goes. I also used to write a lot before I kind of was able to make work full time. And you wrote about drawing, right? Yeah, so I was um I was kind of an art critic. Art critic is weird. Like, I read I think... your phrase pieces. Thanks. <laughs> but, yeah, I used to I used to write, and I I love it. Uh, I still write every day for myself. Journaling is a really big part of my life. So at some point, I kind of want to find a way to bring that passion kind of into the fold of my practice. But I'm still figuring out how I'm going to do that. Well, Sophie, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today and learning more about No One Belongs Here More Than You. It's been really fascinating to delve into the themes of loneliness, desire, human connection, and see how they're present both in Miranda July's stories and in your own practice. Thank you so much for your insights, for choosing this wonderful piece of fiction to discuss in this podcast. And thank you, Sophie Rukrock, for being on Art Fictions. <laughs> Thank you, listeners, and also thanks to today's guest, Sophie Rugrock, and our lovely host, Vanessa Murrell. As always, we'd really love to hear your feedback directly. Be brave and email us, artfictionspodcast at gmail.com, and you can support this podcast via patreon.com slash artfictionspodcast to keep it free of advertising. As for credits, Art Fictions was recorded by Andy Amirshah, and an unedited filmed version can be viewed on YouTube at Cubit Community Radio and Mixcloud. For this abridged podcast, the music was written and performed by Griffin Knipe, while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created our Jolly logo. Well then, happy listening, reading, seeing and making till next time.